0: Amen, amen, brilliant, I like that intro, this is Tom, his garage got broken into, <laughs> it's true though, it's true, it's true, it's true and it's definitely, definitely important, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that in here somewhere, we're going to talk about that, because um, I'm talking this morning about worship and warfare, that's a series we're working through as a church, a series called Worship and Warfare, looking at these, these two themes that run through the Bible and how they work out together. The idea that as we worship, as we commit ourselves to God, that our spiritual act of worship, as we lay down our life to follow him, as we worship, it is an act of open warfare against principalities and powers. So what the Bible says, it says we do not fight against flesh and blood, we fight against powers, we fight against principalities and it's us saying, I am aligned to God. I, my, I belong. My, my actions, my heart, my life belong to him. And they do not belong to any other power. They do not belong to the prince of the air. They do not belong to the prince of this age. They belong to the king, king Jesus. It isn't, worship is an act of warfare. To help us structure this series, we're looking through uh, the life of David a worshipper and a warrior. We're looking at his life and we're looking at some of the songs, the Psalms that David wrote at different moments in his life. We're looking at those Psalms that start with a Psalm of David when he was... Du, 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 du. This morning we're looking at a Psalm of David when he was in the cave of... I've never said this word out loud, I don't think. Adullam, Adalum. Adullam, Adullam. Adalum. that's how we say it. Adullam. So we agree to say it. I'm sure other people agree to say it differently. But when he was in the cave of Adullam. And we're going to look at this moment in David's life. And we're going to look at it through the lens of destiny and disappointment. I've, I've called this talk Destiny, Disappointed. <laughs> both question marks intended. Because I want to question both of those things. And I'll look at them and the antidote for them being humility and hope. So what we're going to look at this morning, destiny is an interesting thing, isn't it? A sense of destiny is an interesting thing. It's really obvious in the the young. I work in a primary school, and if you ask kids what do they want to be when they're older, a, a large majority of them will say footballer. We'll say singer. We'll say that sort of thing. They've got this sense of I'm going to be like the, the. These are the people we hold up as celebrities, and that's where I'm going. There's destiny. I'm going to be the top of this. I'm going to do this, devoid from the reality that they've got two left feet and complain when they walk to to the tube station. They're like, I'm so tired, Mr. Avery. And you want to be a, you want to be a footballer, okay? <laughs> devoid from the reality that. When I'm there leading singing assembly, we we sing that. There's no one that's no like Jesus. Some some sometimes we work in a Church of England school, and I'm like, no, no I walk can't walk, and then the kids are like, my, my, my walk can't walk. You want to be a singer? Okay, we'll just <laughs> uh, this sense of destiny devoid from reality. It's really acutely obvious in the young. Oh, when I, this is, I like, when I was a kid. Okay, I didn't want to be a footballer or a singer. But I did have this sense of I want to be known for something. And um, I don't know what was going on in my little mind, but when I was a kid, I, I, I hope this makes sense. It's not going to make sense because it's madness. I used, to, I used to always get toffee crisps. You know the chocolate bar? And I used to eat toffee crisps. And in my head, I was like, I'm going to be like known as the guy who has toffee crisps. <laughs> <laughs> God, I don't understand. But I grew out of that and I graduated. <laughs> I I graduated on to. <laughs> this is so stupid. I graduated on to always having with me some satsumas, <laughs> and I just get them out and have a satsuma. And I was going to be the guy who's like, "These the guy who has satsumas, you know, Tom, right?" I don't know. <laughs> it's really, really clear in the young, like this sense of destiny. And it's what we sort of, as a culture, we feed our minds with. We watch these stories about hidden destiny. Like he's just a little sort of kid with glasses who lives under the stairs. But really, he's the chosen one. He's, he's just there on his dad's, his uncle's farm, a moisture farm on Tatooine. But really, he's the chosen one. This sense of story, narrative, your story is, you're the, you're the des- destiny. You've got this grand destiny ahead of you. Actually, it's something that, that yes, it's acutely we're aware of it in the young, but it's something we sort of grow up with. It's something we tell ourselves as as society we say, "There's well, I've got." I, I I'm going to read you a poem. Some of you will know this poem. It's called Invictus, and um, it is this idea, this distilled idea that I am, I've got somewhere to go. I'm going to forge my way forward. Just hear me. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not saying this is the right way to think. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about this is as a world, as a society. This is how people think. Invictus, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. Do you hear that? This sense of I am, I am unconquerable. It's me. I can do this thing. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried, nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. see us, if they've not heard it, they might hear it and go, yes, that's me. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. Destiny. And yet we know. We know. We all know. Those destinies, those those dreams, are frustrated, are disappointed. They don't come through. That That plan I had doesn't, it's not, what happened to it this morning is not going to be a pep talk it's not going to be yes we can it's not it's not going to be a self-help right if you you are the it's not because that is not the bible that is not the gospel Uh, steph spoke last week and he put it i thought so well when he talks about the worldview the the sort of common worldview the way people see the world is a sense of self-sovereignty This idea that what matters around me is my opinion, my truth. My truth is what matters. Or my plans are what matter. My ways, my means, my timing, my, my, my. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We're going to look this morning at David. And we're going to look at his view of the world around him. His view that the story he is in is not his story. His view that the plans are not his plans. The means are not his, the ways are not his, the timing is not his, it is not his, it does not belong to him. He is part of a bigger story in which he is not the hero. He is part of a bigger story in which the hero is someone else altogether. This morning we're going to look at this idea of destiny and disappointment we're going to look at the antidote, antidote that we cling on to, which is humility and hope. Let's pray. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you meet with us. Lord, we, we are so grateful that you met with us this morning, that we come to you and you come towards us. Lord, we thank you that you... Have plans for us, Lord. We thank you that you have work to do in us, Lord. We thank you this morning, Lord, that your word will not return to you empty, but will accomplish all it sets out to do. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that although I may have just a few pebbles, you are the one who slays giants. Lord, we ask for that this morning, that giants of self-sufficiency and self-sovereignty would be... Taken down this morning, lords. Lord, we ask for that. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, we're, we're in 1 Samuel 24 this morning. We're going to read a, a passage from here and we're going we're to look at a, a psalm in a little while. Um, it's up there, but you do feel free to find it, 1 Samuel 24. Uh, I'm going to read a bit of this to us and we're going we're to look at some more of it in a bit. It says this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Gedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And David went in to relieve himself, and Saul went in to relieve himself. It's a fascinating bit of the Bible, isn't it? You know, like the stuff that gets recorded. There's a reason, isn't there? Let's have a look. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterwards David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. All right. there's the story. Um, let's just, let me just bring you up to speed with this story. Lots of you will know it, or you've been here through the series, and you, you'll be aware of it, but let me just bring you all up to speed. There's two key players in the story. You've got obviously Saul and David. You've got Saul, who is this big guy. He, it says he's head and shoulders above all of Israel. He's really, when they selected him as king, that was one of the reasons. There's, let's go with Saul. Look at him. He's a big, impressive guy. He, he's anointed as king. Uh, he has some early victories, and then he just makes some serious errors errors to do with his heart errors to do with what he's seeing as ultimate what he's seeing as his what his trust is in he makes a, a, a grave error and the anointing of god the kingdom is ripped from him that's what samuel says the kingdom is ripped from you we we know in human terms he's still king he's still he's still Got the, the capital and the army, and the, he's still king in human terms, but in spiritual terms, the anointing and the kingdom is ripped from him. And this is where this, this other guy comes in, David. Um, God leads Samuel, the prophet, to go to Jesse, and Jesse gets all his sons, because God said one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. So he gets all his sons, and yeah, not that one, not that one. That one. You know the story, and, it, and it's like, but none of them, none of them are. So who is it? And there's this forgotten son. He's out in the fields looking after the sheep. David. And they bring him in and he's anointed as the next king. He, the anointing is on him. He's the, the next king. He has this very clear destiny, if you like. You know how the story goes. David um, slays Goliath. There's this massive giant. He's bigger than Saul. He's enormous. And he's, he's uh, part of the Philistine army. And he's challenging Goliath. Israel he's challenging the army of God and David comes along and he sees it and he goes but we're the people of God and he doesn't wear Saul's armor it's too big for him he takes these few stones and he says how can you stand against the people of God the victory the battle is the Lord's and he hits the giant with a stone and the giant dies and he takes his sword and this big sword which is like a a symbol of, of human strength Arrayed against the people of God, and he takes it and he cuts off the giant's head. We know this story, and he goes on, and Saul becomes jealous of David. David, anointed as king, Saul's jealous of him, the king, humanly king, and he tries to kill him. And we come to this point, and David is on the run. He's run away from Saul, and he's, he's gone to different beats, and he's, he, he's actually with him, he's got the, the sword of Goliath. He's gone to Where where some priests were keeping that sword and they offered it to him and he took it. That's the sword he probably has with him. I mean, he may, there may be other weapons along the way, but that is what a sword that he's been given. And Saul's pursuing him, and then David is hiding in this cave. Pretty low ebb. Pretty difficult spot to be in, in this cave. We're not talking hobbit hole here, we're not talking cozy talking cave in mountains somewhere, hidden away, where David and a whole load of other outcasts have come to join him. We've got this cave where people have gathered, people, downtrodden people have gathered to David and said, you're our captain, this ragtag bunch. So you've got the king with his army and the captain with his ragtag bunch. And this is where Saul comes into the cave. You can imagine he's there in sort of just the outside of the cave. And it's sort of, you can't, if you look into a cave, it's all dark inside. So David and his men are in there in the dark. But if they look out, they can see Saul. They can see because the light's coming in that way. So they can see Saul and Saul comes in to relieve himself. And they see him and David's men go, this is it. This is the moment. This is the moment of destiny. Here's the day. Behold, the Lord said, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. This is it. The moment you've been waiting for. Take Goliath's sword. Kill him. Destiny before you. This is the moment you could make your name great. Kill Saul. Take the throne. Done. If you were writing a human story with a human hero, perfect poetic justice. The giant that Saul wouldn't face David slays with the sword from it's like beautiful story, but that's not the story. You see, you see, David has a whole different view of it than his men. A whole different view of it than his men. He does something just. It just looks bizarre. He sneaks up and he cuts off a corner of the robe, and even in that, it says he's he's struck. His heart, his his conscience. He goes, "I shouldn't have even done that," because you see, David gets something here. He gets. He is not the hero. His hope is not in himself. His hope is not in his strength. His hope is not in the great sword he wields. His hope is not in any of those things he understands. It's not his story. It's not his timing. It's not his will that counts. It's not his means that counts. His hope is rooted somewhere else entirely. He cuts off the corner of the robe and he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed. the story is so much bigger than me, so much more complex. It's not about me. We're going to read Psalm 142. Now, this is a psalm. You feel free to start turning there. This is a psalm that um, David wrote in the cave. Now, there's a couple of moments when David's in the cave. So we don't know if this is then or now. And I'm not, we're not, you're looking at this psalm to say this happened exactly here. He penned it as he cut off the robe and then it just came. That's a good idea. It's not how it works. But this psalm betrays something of David's view of the world and David's view of his own place within it. His, own, his place in the narrative of God's story. This betrays something of that. And that's why I want to look at it this morning. Let's read this psalm together. Psalm 142. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. You can read from there or you can read from your Bible. Let's read this together. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see... There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me. You will deal bountifully with me. Okay. I'm going I'm to work through this bit by bit. I'm just going to unpack some of this for us to understand what David's thinking is. How his mind and his heart work. Let me just, just open these first two verses. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. David just knows he's not in control of this situation. Now that might be really obvious. It looks pretty obvious. He's in a cave with a couple of hundred outcasts. And yet, when we look at things around us in the world, trouble comes, we can so often try to manage it try to manage our situation, try to think, okay, I see this, and I, if I put that in place. Maybe it's financial, and we look at it, and we go, okay, I could work out this and that. And our first look at it is, I'm in control. I am the master of my fate. I can work this thing out. It's trouble at work, and we think, I can, if, I just, if I do that conversation and that, and I do this and and we just try to claw away at this thing and go, "I can work this out." But David's first, first thing is to say, "God, I am not in control. I need you. I cry out. I plead for mercy. I pour out my complaint. I tell my trouble before you." It is the first position of his soul. And if you read David's Psalms again and again and again, they start like this: "Help me, God. Help me, God." This pattern, this should be a big part of our lives. This is humility. This is where we must start with disappointment. Not with a sense of I can figure out all the pieces. No. I cannot figure out all the pieces. I cannot put it all back together. Some of you are going to hear that. I'm aware some of you will hear that as a, as a, a kick, as a, as a bit of a kick up the butt, as a bit of a, oh gosh, that okay, all right, Tom. And, and others will hear that as a great relief. If you hear that as a great relief, that is, that is good. It, it should come to us as a relief that I am not in control. I, I can't manage all of this. If it hits you with a bit of a kick, I would just challenge you a little this morning to go, okay, why do, I, why do I see the idea that the creator of the universe is in control rather than me as a challenge? That's something to attend to, something to think through, something to, to pray about this morning because this is a relief that I am not in charge Because I know when I do put myself in in charge, I make it. I'm really good at making mess. Really good at it. Chloe's smiling at me. She loves me, which is a great relief as well. Because I'm brilliant at making mess. As are we all, right? We're just so good at it. But I'm not in control of my destiny. Here's hope. Hope is built on this, me not being in control. Verse 3 says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. See, I'm not, I'm not in control. And not only that, I can't see the way ahead. I, I know up, up, up ahead there's going to be other obstacles and, and, and stuff that gets in the way. I don't know the way, so I come to the one who knows the way. I, I come to the one who knows my way. Psalm 139 Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I'm not in control. I cannot see the path ahead. And yet, there is one who hems me in. Behind and before, he lays his hand upon me, searches out my path. Wow. Wow. David gets this. Let's move on to verse four. It says, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. You might be here this morning. You might be like David in this, this, this verse here. You might be in a pretty dark place. You might feel really alone. You might have that loneliness weigh very heavily upon you. You might be here in, in amongst a crowd and just feel really alike. There is none who notices me. I'm aware there may be, be some that is, that is the reality of where you are right now. For all of us, it's where we are in moments. And this idea that there's no refuge for me this concept of refuge isn't one we, we sort of talk about that much. It's really right throughout the Psalms, this idea of refuge. Somewhere that I am safe. Somewhere where I can run to an anchor in the storm a fortress. It's similar, very similar to the concept of hope. One we'd be much more familiar with. It's the place where I find my safety, security, I find my future there, my hope there. David says in this moment, there's no refuge for me. There's no hope for me. If that is you this morning, you just feel that deeply. There's no hope for me. I want you to hear this next verse. Verse five, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Although around me it may look like there is no hope for me, there is no refuge, there is no place to run to, I know, Lord, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. This is what hope is built on. That wherever I am, however I feel, whatever's going on, God is my present help. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Imagine that kind of hope. Rooted deep down inside, That though the earth gives way, whatever the circumstance, I know you are my refuge, you are my help in time of trouble. This idea of its destiny and and disappointed. We're just so aware that there's just nothing really out there that delivers on its promises. Not only that, there's nothing out there that promises what God promises. There's nothing out there that says, this is eternal security. This is eternal not only does it not deliver the small things it promises. The things of the world don't even deliver what they promise. They don't even promise what God promises. There's none that promises what God promises. There's nothing you can tuck into as your portion which promises what God promises. Because all else is finite and failing. You see, the promise of God, of finding refuge in God, is God himself. The journey and the destination of dependence and hope in God is greater dependence and hope in the eternal God. Verse six, attend to my cry for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors for they are too strong for me. We come back to this this same theme. I am not the hero. I'm not the master of my fate. I need rescue. So I call to the rescuer. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I just love this last verse. Here is David living as an outcast with this ragtag bunch of followers. And he says, the righteous will surround me. (coughs) Ragtag Bunch of sort of misfits sound a bit familiar. That's the church. Don't take it as an insult. It's what God says we are. We, we. He, he takes what is weak. He takes what is unwise. He takes what is. He takes us and he builds the church out of us. And so when David is able to say. I might not be in natural terms the king with the army and the capital. No, I am surrounded by the righteous. The anointing of God is on me and I am surrounded by the righteous. I dwell amongst those God has called and put around me. I am surrounded by the righteous. That is what we, the church, can say. I am, I am surrounded by the righteous. his hope full circle hope god's rescue brings us from a hope in this hidden destiny that somehow is linked to our own strengths and figuring things out to replanting our hope in him for him to then knit us into a people of destiny wow that's beautiful There's something of self-sovereignty that when we surrender that, we come into this place of not just, it's not just me now figuring this out. but Actually, I'm, I'm on a journey with a people who are surrendered to God. We go from self-sovereignty to corporate surrender. To the one who deals bountifully with us. See, here's hope. <sighs> that God deals bountifully with me. We trust in the one who works out all things for the good of those who love him. You see, here's what David knows. This is what David gets in this bit. That's why he doesn't pick up the sword and kill Saul. Because he gets that his, his hope is not in swords. His hope is not in strength. His hope is not in some other worldly way of working this out. His hope is in the Lord not my way, not my glory, he says. Not my glory, he says. I do not want to make my name great. I want to make his name great. So he says to Saul, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not be against you because it is not my vengeance. It's not my battle. The battle is the Lord's. Fast running out of time. So I'm just going to just work out where God wants us. Okay. Destiny. Disappointment. Great antidotes that God gives us. Humility. We come to him and we say, it's not, I can't do this on my own. And hope is what he brings us into. You see, when we, when we see David in this story, we see someone who has these in spades. He goes, David, God, I'm not going to work this out on my own. I am going to hope in you. Humility. I just want to read to you um, from Philippians. Philippians 2. It says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father you see this pattern we see in david's life we see it perfectly perfectly in christ's life see that's our savior completely humble to the point of death trusting absolutely in the purposes of the father to the point where he says not my will but yours. It's in Christ's example of humility that we also find our great hope. See, we trust in one who is not far from us. We trust in one who came into the world where people are working out their self-sovereignty. We trust in the one who came as the sovereign into that. We trust in the one who came as the sovereign, who rules from beginning to end, who walked amongst our disappointments, who was tested in every way, but remained without sin. We trust in the one who remained to the end, humble and committed to the purposes of the father, to the point of death. Here is our hope. Like it says in 1 Peter, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been born again, into a living hope. You see, when I talk about hope this morning, it is not a hope that we have to work out. Okay, so I've got to strive after this. Okay, I've got to get hope. All right, Tom, I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to get hope. No, we are born again into a living hope. We are born again into a living hope. It is what we are given and gifted as inheritance that is imperishable, unfading. You are born again into a living hope. Okay. Life is not simple. Life is up and down. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That's not in the Bible, that one. <laughs> we don't know what life's going to throw up. We cannot see the traps ahead. i tell you what, there's one thing we do know and it's really clear throughout the New Testament. One thing we are to expect We're to expect suffering. We're to expect things not to go right. In Philippians it says, it's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It says in Thessalonians, we have been destined for afflictions. In Matthew, Jesus says, you will be hated because of my name. I could go on, I could list and list we are called to be, yes, a people of destiny, but we are called to be a suffering people in in a season of now and not yet. In a season of, yes, we've been brought into this beautiful people. The righteous surround us. God deals with us bountifully, working out all things for our good. He also calls us to take up our cross daily. I'm just going to say this morning, don't be surprised when life is tough. It did not come to us as a surprise this morning when when Chloe went down to get the pram out and the garage had been broken into. We spent some time on the phone sort of preaching to one another, preaching this. This is not a sign that God's love is somehow vanished. This is not a sign that we are on shaky ground. No, it is the exact opposite. For he says we will face opposition. So I know, because I know, because I know that he loves me. And I know I stand on solid ground. And we talk on the phone and we're preaching this to one another. And then Caleb on the other end, he's there with Chloe and he says, Can I say something to daddy? And he takes up the phone and he says to me, Daddy, this means we're winning. (laughs) 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 That's big. From the mouths of babes, right? It means we're winning. I love it. I'll say to you this morning, if you're suffering if there's so many people here, you are suffering. It's, it's tough. We're called to rejoice in those moments. We're also called to say, "God is too big for me. I need you God. I need you God. Deliver me. But whatever the outcome. Whatever the outcome, God, you are my refuge. Whatever the outcome, I know you've brought me into the righteous. You've brought me here. And you are the one who deals bountifully with me. Whatever the outcome, I trust that you are working out all things for my good. You might be in a season here and you think, oh, actually, I'm doing pretty good. It's green skies. Hang on. Blue skies. <laughs> green grass. I wrote that down and thought, that sounds really good. And then he said it and then, you know, humbled, humbled. Well, good, 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 good. You might be in a really good season. Listen, it's for you to say, God, this is, it's just too good for me, God. I say, let this season last. Please do, God. But I know it won't. I know there's traps ahead. And whatever the outcome, you are my refuge. You have brought me into the Righteous. And you are the one who will deal bountifully with me. I'm going to read, read this one. No, you know what? I'm going to stop there. God deals bountifully with us. We're going to respond to God. We're going to come to him. We're going to declare this. He is our refuge. He is our rock. He is the one who deals bountifully with us. I wonder if the bands could come back up. Yes, wonderful. Let's stand together.